this, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. Hello! Howdy. Hi everybody, Sam Goodman, the Hot Nerd, bringing you another episode of the Hot Nerd Podcast. Well, kind of, sort of, I'm bringing you another part of WTFRM, a reflection on what is meaningful to workplace safety. This totally free audiobook version of my latest book that I'm bringing to you here, right here on the Hot Nerd Podcast. I'm super pumped to bring it to you. If you haven't listened to the past two parts, part one, part two, which cover the first three chapters of the book, make sure you go back and you listen to those first. If you start here, things are probably going to get like super duper confusing. It might not be as fun for you. I don't know. You, you might want to start in the middle. <laughs> That's completely up to you. But I would suggest my my professional opinion here as I sip my coffee. Hold on. Mm, my, my Nespresso here that I just made before I came in to record this. Um, my professional opinion, my professional suggestion would be that you go back and listen to part one, part two. And we are on part three. And we're going to be going through the chapter Seek competency over control. But before we do that, do me a favor. Head over to the website, www.thehopnerd.com. Follow along on all things social media at The Hop Nerd, except for Twitter, because it is super duper special. It is at The Hop Nerd One. Who in the world actually tweets anyone? I don't know. But you can go follow me on there. LinkedIn is a super handy way to kind of follow along with me. Uh, just go search Sam Goodman. You'll see my ugly mug, the picture. You'll see the Hop Nerd logo, all that kind of sort of stuff. Go give me a follow there. It's always much appreciated, a pretty good way to keep in touch. And I will tell you, social media is not the best way to keep in touch with me right now. As I've shared, um, I have been doing a social media fast for the past few months, and it has been amazing. 10 out of 10 would recommend 100%. You should definitely check it out. Just, uh, just awesome. It's just awesome to get away from just stuff and just be involved in writing and be involved in a little more involved in the podcast here. And then just be involved in kind of my normal day-to-day life stuff and trying to focus on being a little bit healthier, trying to stay kicking a little bit longer, trying to stay on this side of the dirt a little bit longer. So I've been spending a lot of time focusing on stuff like that. And like I said, just writing and playing some music again and just kind of doing stuff that I genuinely enjoy like this, bringing you this book. And again, before we dive into the book, let me say, this audiobook version of it, it is the complete book in its entirety. If you enjoy it, if you find value in it, and you want to show us some love and support, head over to Amazon, buy the paperback version. Pretty, pretty please. We greatly appreciate it. Again, don't have to, no requirement, no obligation. But if you love the podcast, if you enjoy the stuff that we've been doing here over the past couple of years, if you enjoy the books, if you enjoy all this kind of sort of stuff, if you're just appreciative that we're giving the book away for free in an audiobook version that you don't have to pay, like you've seen safety books, they're like a bazillion dollars nowadays. What the heck is going on with that? I don't know. But if, for whatever reason, if you have the ability and you choose to do so, we would greatly appreciate it. Again, you can get it on Amazon along with all the other books that we have. Um, Safety Sucks, the Bullshit and the Safety Profession They Don't Tell You About. It's follow-up book that I co-authored with my near and dear friend, Ian Allison. Safety Sucks, The Manifesto. And then more recently, WTFRM, A Reflection on What is Meaningful to Workplace Safety. And I also have a couple other books that are not safety-related, such as Obscured and In His Name. You can go find all those over there. So again, your support is always greatly appreciated, and it quite literally helps keep the lights on around 
around these parts. It allows me to continue to bring these this get some words out. Come on, Sam, pull it together. <laughs> it allows me to bring you this type of content. It allows me to bring you our YouTube content and to continue to write books and hopefully bring some value into your pursuit of doing safety better. With all that being said, let's jump right in. Seek competency over control. It is far better to render beings in your care competent than it is to protect them. Jordan Peterson. What is your hammer? A better question. What is your nail? An even better question. Is the nail you're about to drive necessary? If your childhood was anything like mine, an upbringing that was set against the mountainous backdrop of rural Appalachia, you spent a good deal of time outdoors. Time spent outside seeking adventure and discovery was not optional. It was a firmly spoken rule. During the summer months, while out of school for summer break in particular, I recall explicit direction from my mother to leave this house and don't come back until it's dark. My cousins and I, along with our notorious gang of neighborhood kids, would fill our days with adventures of country life. We would swim in the nearby creeks and ponds. We would fish and catch crawdags along with the occasional snake. We would explore the local woods, climbing trees and eating blackberries fresh from the naturally growing bushes. We would play army. We would explore the dilapidated old tobacco barns and structures that speckled the countryside. We would build forts and hideouts, and we would run, play, and create mischief until ready to pass out from exhaustion. We were industrious little bastards, especially as it related to the construction of hideouts and other structures meant to act as sort of a home base for our adventures. Being in the country meant that there was a steady supply of tools and materials at our disposal. We would snag a handsaw here, pick up a hammer there, borrow an old Folgers coffee can full of nails and screws from somewhere, and almost always be in some sort of trouble for failing to return these items to their rightful home. Suitable building material always seemed to be on hand. Remnants from some odd home improvement or other project were often at our disposal. We were lucky enough that my father, fueled by boredom by his innate need to continue working after his retirement, had recently constructed a home woodworking shop. His inability to sit idly by in retirement, an inability that led him to be constantly doing home remodeling and producing a steady output of homemade furniture, had a downstream effect of creating endless adventure for us. On one of these typical summer days, after growing uninterested in playing army and tired of swimming, we decided that it was time to build something. After some careful planning of our soon-to-be cathedral-like fort, a division of responsibility for obtaining the items on our shopping list, and an exchange of comments on where to best find these needed items, we were each off to dutifully retrieve the required supplies. Back and forth we went like a small army of ants, each arriving with armful of tools, materials, and supplies. Our pile of supplies grew and grew, each armful adding to the expanding heap. This growing mound of handsaws, hammers, lumber, nails, rope, and tape would soon be transformed by our 10-year-old hands into the structure we had just spent the last few hours planning. After a few moments spent encircling the pile and discussing our next steps, we were off and building. As the sharp clacking of hammers and the light rhythmic buzzing of handsaws grew to the roar of a true construction site, so did the structure from out of the earth. Board by board, nail by nail, the building was beginning to take its rough shape around a small tree that we had been eyeballing for some time. The mid-sized willow tree was in a section of prime real estate. It was nestled nicely in the dense camouflaging woods and was almost at equal distance to each of our homes. It doesn't get much sweeter than that as it relates to desirable locations for childhood tree forts. But the tree, despite its primo location and amenities, was painfully too small and flimsy for the gargantuan structure we had in mind. We soon realized the predicament that we faced as the small willow began creaking and leaning under the load of our construction efforts. 
After some hurried adaptation that came in the form of some large already fallen branches that we used as bracing, we paused for a moment to reevaluate our plan. A tree fort that no one could use? That simply would not do. After some quick thinking and conversation, our new plan roughly took shape. Remembering that there were some leftover posts from a recent decking project at my house, we decided on doing something similar. The deck posts would be arranged in a triangular fashion around the willow tree, acting as support for the base of the structure. We had each witnessed this type of construction performed by our respective fathers and knew it to be typically successful. So back to work we went. We dug three holes as deep as we could, and we set the poles. We then strung the parts of the posts together with some recently acquired tubifores and tied it all back into the rubbery willow tree at the center. We then went to work filling in the deck with a hodgepodge mixture of scrap plywood, leftover bits of lumber, and possibly a road sign or two. Though not yet complete, the time to test the viability, the structural soundness of the structure, had arrived. It held. After giving the structure a good shake, a couple firm jumps, and a few solid kicks, it held. It was a little shaky and wobbly, but it remained intact and standing. Left unsatisfied with the remaining fragility of our build, we set about the task of adding rigidity to the structure the best way we knew how, by adding more nails. Nail after nail, we hammered in the remainder of what was left in that old metal Folgers can. To us, more nails equated to a more rigid and safer tree fort. Surely the more fasteners we could add, the better. After driving in the last of the nails and a speedy visual inspection, we were comfortable climbing atop the platform to continue our build upwards towards the heavens. We were certain that we had done all that we could do to ensure a stable base for the remainder of our project. With all of those nails, there's no possible way. I'm certain we were thinking to ourselves in that particular moment. Kid by kid, we made our way onto the decking. And just like that, just as the last little hellion in our group victoriously stood atop the platform, it crumbled and fell back to earth. Now, the collapsing of a barely three-foot child-built structure might not be that much of a catastrophe in the real world. But to us, in that moment, it was a soul-crushing defeat. After laying in the heap of rubble for some time, crying about our now-bruised little egos and pondering what exactly had just happened, we emerged from the dust hell-bent to discover just that. What the heck happened? How could this be? We had just stood on the platform an hour prior. We had jumped on it. We had kicked it. And although a little wobbly, it had held. As we sifted through the pile of rubble, examining each piece meticulously for clues, as we each continued to mutter our questions aloud, what happened? How? Impossible. What changed? We discovered the answer to our questions in that pile of broken wood and nails. The nails! rang out a sharp cry of revelation from the pile. Each of us ran towards a scream, forming a circle around the discovery. In awe, and with their mouths gaping open in surprise, we observed the now ripped apart tubifores. They had split. Each had torn. Tears that had grown out of the multiple nail holes in the boards. To check our newly formed hypothesis, we ran to inspect the still standing posts. Just as we suspected, a gnarly cluster of misshapen nails remained in the uprights, still standing strong where they had once secured the horizontal boards. In our efforts to create strength, we created frailty. Our logic, one that operated on the belief that the application of more nails would increase stability, only left the boards weak and riddled with holes. Where one or two nails might have resulted in the desired effect, five, six, and sometimes more rendered the entire lot ineffective. We sought out safety, certainty, and reliability through the application of more. And all more gave us was harm and destruction. Nail by nail, all while trying to make things better, all while doing it with the best of intentions, we made things far worse. Back to our questions. What is your hammer? What is your nail? 
is the nail you're about to drive necessary? We've operated under a generally flawed assumption, especially as it relates to occupational safety and health, for an extremely long period of time. This assumption loosely states, as mentioned already, to increase safety, we must do more safety things, or we get better at safety by doing more. For so long, we have obsessed about what is our hammer and what is our nail, so neurotically that we rarely, if ever, pause to ask ourselves, is this nail even necessary? We take this logic farther, demanding more and more hammers and nails, new and shiny hammers, ones with fancy composite handles, rubberized grips, or flashy new colors, all to accompany our ever-growing and bloating selection of useless and unneeded nails. With that being said, we most certainly never allow our minds to wander towards the thought, could this nail actually create harm? We believe that all doing, especially when done in the name of safety, is generally good, and that not doing can never be an option. We genuinely believe that more safety stuff, more doing in the name of safety, will eventually yield us the safety performance that we desire. But just as that seemingly endless number of nails we poured into that tree for, more often only weakens that which is profoundly important. It only degrades that which actually matters. So, if not more, what? If more, more, more isn't the solution, if more causes unintended harm and doesn't give us the desired outcomes we'd hope to achieve from our efforts, then what? What can we do if simply doing more is no longer on the table? The answer, in its simplest form, is that we can do less. Insanity! We can do less safety stuff! I could almost hear you shouting as you rip the pages from this book. But hear me out on this. It's not nearly as insane as it might sound if taken at face value. Doing less, but with a focus on doing it extremely well. Doing less of the meaningless less of the useless, less of the things that only create headache and harm, and less of the things that simply do not matter. We can do less of the meaningless in exchange for a greater focus on the meaningful, doing less of the unimportant and destructive so that we can focus on doing the things that matter extremely well. We have obsessively focused on controlling the employees in our care for years. We have genuinely believed it to be our primary duty. We have operated under this assumption that we must always be there, ever ready to control every person's situation or problem. But how has that worked out for us? Even though we quickly realized that we would never have the ability to be everywhere all at once, we did not give up our insatiable desire to exercise ultimate control over our work worlds. Rather than turning our efforts towards something much more meaningful, we spent our time and resources seeking out more, 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 and new, 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 new ways to do the same old things, ways to control our people at every turn. Rather than pursuing that which is meaningful, we have fooled ourselves into believing that, one, we should control everything, always, and two, we can control everything, always. Both of these beliefs are fairytale-like illusions that only lead us astray. They waste our precious time and efforts. They move us away from things that have higher potential meaning and drive us to induce pain and suffering into our systems, all in pursuit of ultimate control. This desired state of ultimate control, which itself is a fairy tale, more than likely falls in the causes more harm than good bucket. If we honestly believe that people are not a problem to be managed, then why do we insist on controlling them at every turn? If we openly state that we view people as problem solvers, but then treat them as problem creators, seeking to exercise some Orwellian company control over every aspect of their work worlds, we're lying. I believe that we seek this control because we genuinely care. We want to protect those souls in our charge, so much so that we often create more harm than good. One of my favorite Jordan Peterson quotes, one already mentioned at the beginning of this chapter, lends well to our conversation. It is far better to render beings in your care competent than it is to protect them. 
This really hits the core of what I'm seeking to relay to you. It really gets to the heart of the matter. The fact is, no matter how hard you try, and no matter how much you might fool yourself into believing that you can, you'll never be able to control all. No matter how hard you try, no matter how much you might fool yourself into believing that you can, you'll never be able to fully protect your employees from all the danger and chaos that lurks around every corner of their work. But you can do something with much more meaning. You can seek to render them competent to deal with the danger and chaos they will certainly encounter. I suppose it's tempting, if the only tool you have is a hammer, to treat everything as if it were a nail. Abraham Maslow. For so long, we have viewed control as our hammer and our people as the nail. We have sought out this perceived idyllic state of being in which the company, the leader, someone, is ever-present to observe, oversight, fix, beat, blame, and keep those pesky, error-prone employees on the right and righteous path. For far too long, companies have overvalued leadership knowledge while diminishing the value of frontline expertise and know-how. This management knows best always mentality seems to be ever-present and only growing in popularity. It's most noticeably seems to rear its ugly head post-accident as leadership pours down judgment, blame, and buckets full of would-have, could-have, and should-haves upon the involved employees, singing a tune about how if these uncaring people would have just listened more, followed the rules better, or just complied harder, then nothing bad would have happened. Many leaders are quick to chalk success up to their illustrious leadership ability and are even faster in pinning the blame for a failure on the individual contributor. They'll say things like, I told them to be careful. I told them to follow the rules. I told them that time pressure doesn't exist. Or I told them to pay more attention. These will swiftly be followed up with conclusions such as, if they had only listened, if they had only cared more, or if they had just paid more attention, then nothing bad could have possibly happened. And just like that, we have our villain. We arrive back at what we believe to be true all along. Bad things happen to bad people. Bad people cause bad things to happen. Often, organizationally speaking, success has been viewed as an us thing, while failure has been viewed as a you thing. But allow me to let you in on a little secret. Let's talk about an uncomfortable truth. If your people are not rendered competent to navigate the complex intricacies and decision points contained within their work worlds and do it all with maximum autonomy and limited oversight, that's an organizational problem, a you problem, not an employee problem. Your hammer is not control. Your hammer is competency. It's the same reason why we teach our children how to swim, why we teach them about the dangers of drugs and alcohol, about the perils of reckless driving, and why we seek to provide them with the maximum amount of valuable decision-making knowledge around the things that we know can be life-ending or altering. We know that we will never always be there. We will not be at every swimming pool. We will not be in every car. That they will sneak off to a party and that they will encounter situations, no matter how hard we try to keep them away from them, in which their decisions have the potential to cause them or others significant harm. I remember vividly how my father described his role as a parent to me. To prepare you to make the best possible decisions that you can, no matter what situations you find yourself in. Leadership and parenting are two vastly different things. To be quite honest, I find it disgusting, in bad taste, often to even remotely compare the two. But rendering those in your care competent seems to be a universally meaningful endeavor. I don't know about you, but I think old Pops was onto something. Rendering those in your care competent to make the best possible decisions that they can, no matter the situation in which they find themselves, will always be much more valuable than fooling yourself into believing that you will always be in control. Well, there you have it. There you have it. That was the most recent edition of WTFRM. That was it. There was, there's, there's a chapter. There's a chapter. We're going to do another chapter next week. How pumped are you? I'll tell you, I'm pumped because the next chapter is the chapter called WTF 
RM. So again, if you make sure that you go back, you listen to these in order. That's super duper important. Um, and do me a favor. If you're enjoying this content, if you're enjoying this free version of WTF RM, the audiobook, head over to Amazon, pick up the paperback, show us some love, show us some support. That's all I've got. Until next time, Sam Goodman, the hot nerd signing off. <gasps> Bye. Bye. Bye.